Programming Notes episodes, the general concept is that you can get an extended summary of episodes if you decide that you'd rather have that than listen to the episodes themselves, as well as some notes about what's going on in the community or how you can be helpful and useful in the community. Programming notes for the week of August 7th, 2022. Going to keep this one short-ish. I need people to start being extremely explicit on asks. For example, in the community Slack, Eric Broda talked about starting office hours again and ask what people want. No one answered. If you want just information tipped at you, it will be heavily vendor skewed and won't actually help you accomplish much. I think a lot of people are seeing this. There's not a lot of good content for practitioners, right? Just look at the second vendor washed O'Reilly book that was announced around data mesh in the last few weeks, right? So please, if you actually want to move forward with your journey with external information flow that isn't only paid via a consulting company, Start to not talk about super pointed questions, but talk about what you need and participate. I know so many of you were overwhelmed, but it's super necessary that you pop up your heads and exchange information that you get out of your own way and find other people to chat with and that we start to get into a much better form of I'm going to dump out a couple of my insights or a couple of things we're trying and maybe some things that didn't work well so that there's just more information flowing back and forth. That's really the way you will succeed moving forward. You'll get people that are coming to you and sharing their thoughts as well if you share externally. And that means in other forms than literally just going to a couple of conferences because you might talk to 10 people at that conference. But you know, if you're doing other things that like the meetup and things like that, it's going to lead to people coming to you and talking. So quick intros to this week's episodes before the extended summaries for the interviews. On Monday, it's episode 110, Disrupting, Not Destroying Your Data Governance to Drive Incremental Value, an interview with Laura Madsen. Laura wrote the uh, book, Disrupting Data Governance, and she and I had a fun conversation about how we can rethink the way we do governance, not just the actual application, but how do we need to completely rethink our mindset and how we approach data governance, how we need to move to incremental value-driven changes. I think you'll learn a lot from that one. On Tuesday, it's episode 111, Applying Data Mesh Principles to Your Real-Time Slash Operational Systems. This is Mesh Musings 25. This is kind of my reaction to the absolute ridiculousness of the phrase real-time data mesh. Uh, A lot of things in data mesh are borrowed from and or adapted from the operational systems world. But many people are trying to do the reverse and take things from data mesh and, and instead do that as the way you should approach operations. There are people really who have figured out how to do that on the operational side, right? Seek those out first, but I give some thoughts on what might make some sense to take from data mesh and apply to the operational world. But again, this part of the reason that Jumac focused on uh, the data and analytics side is on the operational side, it's not exactly a solved, you know, kind of approach, but it's much more solved than the data and analytics side is or or was. 
And then out on Friday, it's episode 112, uh, Driving Buy-In and Finding Early Success, Kiwi.com's Data Mesh Journey, which is an interview with Martina Ivanichova. Um, so Martina and I had a great chat about the early transformation journey at Kiwi.com around their, their data side. They're still early in figuring out how to start to hand over data ownership and what that means. And there is just a lot of open and honest conversation about what's working and what's not, right? I think you'll learn a lot from that one as well. So on to the extended summaries for the interviews for this week's episodes. Extended summary for episode 110, Disrupting, Not Destroying Your Data Governance to Drive Incremental Value, an interview with Laura Madsen. I interviewed Laura, who's the CEO of Moxie Analytics and the author of the great book, Disrupting Data Governance. I asked her to be on because of her great work in making us rethink data governance by really analyzing every aspect of what we're doing and saying, does this make sense? Does this drive value? For the purposes of this summary, when discussing data governance, I'm referring to the way many large organizations handle data governance at scale, a way that is very rigid and causes bottlenecks. We all know we can't stereotype or group every organization into that same you know, exact pattern, but general trends really can be observed. Laura started the conversation with her big question when it comes to data governance. How did we end up here? How did most organizations end up with a very rigid, not scalable, non-value-add data governance approach? How are we doing data governance essentially the same way as 30 plus years ago? How can that make sense given all the changes and advancements in tech and software in the last three decades? For Laura, it really doesn't make much sense and we should disrupt that model. You know, hence her book of disrupting data governance. When the data steward, as it currently, quote unquote, works, <laughs> someone in the business that has subject matter expertise, but often has a hard time driving incremental change, often because of politics. So we need to work on flipping the incentives and role goals and, and what's possible to drive incremental value from governance instead of becoming a, a costly bottleneck with data stewards and owners preventing use instead of encouraging it. For Laura, the biggest issue with data governance right now is the governance councils and committees. They typically have worthwhile goals, ones every organization should strive for, but committee structure almost inherently means they will be ineffectual in driving high value work. The data owners have no real line of sight to what's going on with the data and the data stewards who do have that line of sight can't move forward without approval. And after a few meetings of nothing really getting done with these councils and these committees, the required decision makers often stop attending. So the committee is holding useless meetings instead of actually pushing work forward. People who can actually give uh, <laughs> the agreement to move forward aren't there anymore because they weren't seeing any value from these meetings anyway. Committees and councils can have a, a benefit in Laura's view if they are focused on communication instead of direct action. They can be great ways to share context internally, especially among key stakeholders, but you shouldn't 
you should avoid committees uh, that actually hold the decision power whenever possible, especially around data governance. Laura is a big fan of the hub and spoke model of organization to drive things forward with, with data governance. The key to leveraging a model like hub and spoke is strong communication touch points between the centralized hub, you know, the governance team, and the spokes, in this case, the domains. A common failure point with data governance teams, especially in the hub and spoke model, is that the governance team tries to fix the data instead of enabling the teams to handle their own data. As Jay Sen had talked about, empower people don't try to do their jobs. Hub and spoke can probably work relative to data governance in data mesh, but you have to be careful about what is centralized in that hub. It can easily become a bottleneck. So I think it's it's one that it's useful to take learnings from it and to apply some of it, but to not just copy paste that pattern. <laughs> Look at the roles you have that support data governance. Reconsider who does what with a simple RACI or RACI model of responsible, accountable, consulted, and informed. Flip the script by removing accountability for activities when the role has no ability to impact the work, such as making a data steward responsible for an entire data domain when they have almost zero ability to change the workflows, impact data quality, or align expectations, etc. Laura recommends for people to stop, quote unquote, putting their heads down, you know, just working so they can drive something forward. Instead, really think about what you want to change about what you're doing, right? Within data governance, what is your reason for wanting to disrupt your data governance setup as it is? If it's just to shake things up, that's probably not going to go well. You will need some major force of will and perseverance to really make the change. So go in it for the right reasons. So how do you actually start to change your data governance practices and overall approach? Per Laura, start by evaluating the ways you currently do data governance and start to look for ways to break your approaches down into smaller pieces so that you can do small scale disruption and deliver incremental value. Delivering in small increments will make it quicker and easier to deliver value while lowering your chance of failure. As you start to show you are adding value, you will gain momentum as most organizations do not really drive value from their data governance. People are typically pretty happy to enable value creation. Per Laura, you should really rethink the way you do all aspects of data governance. Nothing is sacred. Spend the time to really consider all aspects of your data governance and think if you should change any of those specific aspects, kind of look at them one by one. And Laura even recommends to look to commit to tossing aside practices before you evaluate if they work. That way you're having to pick things back from the garbage bin pile rather than sticking with the status quo when you do say something does work. It's a bit of a psychology approach, but it could be useful. Uh, I asked what typically causes organizations to really rethink their data governance. At least for Laura, she typically gets the call to help somebody rethink their governance when the data governance leader leaves the organization and the CDO or the CIO needs some help cleaning up the issues. And a data governance leader is typically a short-term role for Laura. That leader typically drove so much through their own knowledge and kind of one-offs, you know, of 
quote unquote, where the data bodies are buried rather than through really scalable process. So it can cause a major disruption when they leave. But that disruption can mean opportunity. When the opportunity and drive to change your organization's data governance does arrive, Laura recommends rethinking data governance at the highest level. What are you really trying to accomplish? How do you get to quote unquote good enough? How do you get comfortable with that concept of good enough? And it's crucial to understand that good enough for now may not be good enough for the future and build in a plan to reevaluate processes, but that you can move forward with that good enough. That bridge solution is viable and valuable. It can be quite challenging to change the way people have approached data governance as they've done the same ways for pretty much the last 30 years. Break it up into small changes and get moving. Build the muscle memory of change, deliver value, build momentum around that. For Laura, data governance is often a proxy or a reflection of your broader data culture. It's important to seek balance in your data governance approach between flexibility and rigidity, much like your data culture. Too much flexibility will create too much chaos to move things forward. There is too little communication and or coordination. Too much rigidity is essentially the world we are in today for most organizations, and we can probably agree that's not the best, right? That's not so great. Laura wrapped up on a few points. One, data governance is crucial to driving trust in data. Work with people to really communicate what is happening in your governance approach to increase that trust. Number two, it's very easy to try to tackle everything in data governance but focus on what matters. It's okay to have some sharp edges, just what will drive more value. Too often we try and do everything as this one single end approach versus let's just kind of (laughs) make some progress and go forward. Finally, the third point she made in wrapping up was data governance work is incredibly hard. Laura wants you you data governance people to know that she gets it and, and that you are seen. You do incredibly difficult and valuable work. And I'd like to reiterate that as well. So uh, I think you'll enjoy this episode when it comes out later this week. Extended summary for episode 112, Driving Buy-In and Finding Early Success, Kiwi.com's Data Mesh Journey so far. It's an interview with Martina Ivanichova. So in this episode, I interviewed Martina, who is a data intelligence engineering manager at the travel services company Kiwi.com. Martina started by discussing how historical legacy might be too harsh, but how historical data approaches like the enterprise data warehouse, haven't kept up with the mass proliferation of data sources. When we were taking data from the monolith or a few monoliths, (laughs) uh, it was far easier to think about what data you might have and try to arrange it into something consumable. But now with data coming from so many microservices and from external vendors and partners, it just isn't possible to use the same historical approach. Too many things are changing and there's just way too many sources to really understand for any one person. And then trying to distribute that across a single team that doesn't have the business context just doesn't work. So the centralized data team trying to own as well 
hundreds of pipelines flowing into one central lake or warehouse that they also own. It just isn't scaling, right? So when the Kiwi.com data team ran across the data mesh concept, it was very exciting. It was a way for the people with the business context to conceivably own and manage sharing their data in a reliable way. Uh, The historical general approach to data governance, one centralized team trying to make context-dependent decisions for all the domains, just never made sense to Martina. They could never know the context well enough to make good choices, especially good choices in a timely manner. She noted that if you are moving from that approach, centralization didn't happen in a day. It evolved. Your move to decentralization or federation should also evolve. Think something like thin slicing and decentralizing more and more rather than pushing all ownership out to the domains at once or anything like that. Think about doing it in a controlled uh, manner. Martina then talked about driving buy-in, a topic I circle back on frequently throughout the conversation. She noted, as many have, many, many guests have previously, especially Khan Chow in his episode, how hard driving buy-in can be when people haven't felt the specific pain you are speaking to. So she and her team worked to really have deep conversations with the software engineering teams about how important treating and sharing data as a product can be and how the data team will work to maintain low cognitive load on the software engineers. So how did they actually start driving that buy-in? First, Martina and team worked with uh, engineering upper management to make sure that as they moved forward with domain teams, they would have support. Then they focused on finding good first use cases to work with on those domain teams on. What could be a, a use case that would drive significant value if they got it right, uh, where they could also limit incremental cognitive load on the software engineers? And what had a high likelihood of success to start to build out proof points and momentum? I think these are good questions to ask yourself if you're on the same, you're trying to figure out your initial use cases. Martina mentioned how truly crucial the low initial cognitive load aspect was to driving their data mesh journey forward. The central data team wanted to spend at most two to three days with you know, a group of software engineers to teach them how to work with share and share data. Is that going to be enough for them creating actual data products on their own? No, right? Quite frankly, no. It was about teaching them how to share uh, data and probably more importantly in the long run, how to think about sharing data, that data as a product thinking, right? Then analytics engineers are structuring the data that the software engineers are sharing into actual data products. This setup means it is easy to evaluate and iterate along the way because the software engineers aren't having to learn exactly how data is consumed and things like that versus they're focusing on sharing some data instead of sharing it in a product form. So I asked what they were trying to prove out initially. This is a question I've asked a lot of people, trying to prove out that a specific data set has value, that you could build your own data products, or that you could build an actual data mesh. And for Martina and team, it was more about building out a reliable way to share data. So their proof of value, proof of concept, was focused on proving they could build data products, not necessarily that they could build out a full mesh. 
one really crucial aspect they wanted to test was could they bring the data producers and consumers together with a good outcome without the data engineers? So the producers, the analytics engineers, and the end consumers working together. And the answer is yes, they're seeing great results there. The direct relationship between data producers and consumers is spurring the data producers to rethink how they share and what they share. And very importantly, what more data could they share? Martina, like many other guests, brought up the general industry need for redefining data contracts. They just don't do a ton of the things we need them to, right? So we don't have a good way to detect semantic drift or often even to prevent changes before they break something, right? Somebody goes to commit a change and then we find out that it breaks something downstream. It's even difficult with lots of existing tooling for data producers to see who is consuming their data. I know some data catalogs are working on that, but a lot of folks aren't, aren't using that or, or it's not propagated across all catalogs. And it's also almost non-existent for data producers knowing specifically how consumers are using their data, not just that their data is in use. And there are so many more issues that should be wrapped into data contracts. In circling back on buy-in, Martina talked about how in a brownfield deployment, like what they've got, there are puts and takes, right? Some negatives include dealing with issues of existing tech debt, it's difficult to get prioritization, etc. But one positive is that you already have an existing backlog of requests where you can find some interesting use cases to try out your data mesh proof of value or concept. As part of driving buy-in for the proof of value or concept, Martina and team had to do a lot of those one-on-one -on -one conversations. It can be frustrating to have to do these meetings, but these conversations are crucial to building initial momentum. Martina had some issues when she tried to explain they were doing data mesh to non-data mesh people internally. It's so easy to get confused by when you say we're doing data mesh, what does that mean? There's so much content out there that's very confusing, especially for those people who aren't in data. So she instead reworked and she created a one pager focused on the data as a product concept to help people understand what they were trying to accomplish. Focus on informing people of the, about the what, the why, and the how. Data mesh is more of an implementation detail to them. This is what I keep referring to as, as the unicorn farts principle. In every bit of internal documentation for consumption outside the data team, copy, find, replace data mesh with unicorn farts, because then you will delete every mention of data mesh. And obviously you'll delete every mention of unicorn farts. So you can focus on what actually matters to the other party instead of saying, we're doing data mesh. They don't care. <laughs> that, that's the hidden secret here. They don't really care. They care about what it means for them and, and what it enables them to do. Martina shared about the current role structure of their data mesh journey, right? You've got the data engineers focusing on the data platform. The analytics engineers are building data models on top of the source aligned data to create the consumer aligned data products. The software engineers are focusing on sharing source aligned data, but again, not really necessarily in data product form just yet and data consumers are producing aggregated data models across the different data products produced by the analytics engineers. It is difficult to say they are, are again, are building these full source aligned data products 
as they tra- train their software engineers to really work with data and use data as a product thinking. Remember, they, they're just training them on sharing data for two to three days total. You can't bring someone that far along in learning how to hand data in just half a week. And their end goal or their kind of next stage goal is to embed the analytics engineers further into the domains and to really have them help upskill the software engineers more around data. But it's still early days and they're, they're seeing value and that's what matters, right? They're heading along the path. Martina said, I don't know if we can really call this data mesh. Doesn't really matter. They're they're seeing good value and they're headed in a good direction as to what they're working on with decentralized data. You know, it's tough to say when are you on the journey versus when have you implemented your data mesh versus blah blah blah. It doesn't really matter. Are, are you driving value? Are you doing the right thing for the now and for the long term? And it might feel a bit obvious, but it's good to say out loud. You know, per Martina. Triggering organizational change is the most important part to getting your data mesh journey moving. It will be difficult to get moving, but trying to build out your platform early or trying to get teams to create data products without the organizational support, it's all very likely to fail. You need to get that organizational change going. So I'll wrap up with a few other interesting points to highlight. One uh, key initial success criteria for them was seeing software engineers start to consider what additional data they could share that could be useful and how they could share it reliably. Another would be buy-in for building a data product is obviously easiest when the domain will be the consumer. When that isn't the case, these one-on-one conversations that I talked about and having upper upper engineering management buy-in made it possible to get domains to actually go out and do the work. Another would be figuring out who owns data brought or bought in from the outside can be extremely difficult. Who really wants to own low quality data from an external source that needs to be cleaned and made into a product? Not many folks, but it's really important. Think about what domain would this data live in and then help them to ingest this information from externally. Finally, Kiwi.com leveraged their existing stack for their initial data mesh implementation. There are, of course, lots of missing capabilities, but they can still deliver good incremental value without every piece of the platform in place. So your mileage may vary, but I think that's interesting to really think about how many of these capabilities do we need for the now uh, to be able to drive that incremental value versus we need to head in the right direction in the long term. 